What's better than free money? How you choose to spend it, of course. Right now, open a new CQ checking account and we'll give you $250 to spend however you like. Upgrade those headphones, splurge on concert tickets, or maybe upgrade to ad-free streaming. The choice is yours. And extra cash isn't all this credit union offers. Do your banking, build credit, and invest in your future. All with CQ. Visit CQMD.org today. That's S-E-C-U-M-D.org today. Section 7 of Billy Budd by Herman Melville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Scientific Methodist. Chapter 16. After the mysterious interview in the Four Chains, the one so abruptly ended there by Billy, nothing especially germane to the story occurred until the events now about to be narrated. Elsewhere it has been said that owing to the lack of frigates, of course better sailors than line-of-battle ships, in the English squadron up the straits at that period, the indomitable 74 was occasionally employed not only as an available substitute for a scout, but at times on detached service of more important kind. This was not alone because of her sailing qualities, not common in a ship of her rate, but quite as much probably that the character of her commander, it was thought, specially adapted him for any duty where under unforeseen difficulties a prompt initiative might have to be taken in some matter demanding knowledge and ability in addition to those qualities employed in good seamanship. It was on an expedition of the latter sort, a somewhat distant one, and when the Indomitable was almost at her furthest remove from the fleet, that in the latter part of an afternoon watch she unexpectedly came in sight of a ship of the enemy. It proved to be a frigate. The latter, perceiving through the glass that the weight of men and metal would be heavily against her, invoking her light heels, crowded sail to get away. After a chase urged almost against hope, and lasting until about the middle of the first dog watch, she signally succeeded in effecting her escape. Not long after the pursuit had been given up, and ere the excitement incident thereto had altogether waned away, the master-at-arms, ascending from his cavernous sphere, made his appearance cap in hand by the mainmast, respectfully waiting the notice of Captain Veer, then solitary walking the weather side of the quarter-deck, doubtless somewhat chafed at the failure of the pursuit. The spot where Claggart stood was the place allotted to men of lesser grades, seeking some more particular interview either with the officer of the deck or the captain himself. But from the latter it was not often that a sailor or petty officer of those days would seek a hearing. Only some exceptional cause would, according to established custom, have warranted that. Presently, just as the commander absorbed in his reflections was on the point of turning aft in his promenade, he became sensible of Claggart's presence, and saw the doffed cap held in deferential expectancy. Here be it said that Captain Veer's personal knowledge of this petty officer had only begun at the time of the ship's last sailing from home, Claggart then for the first in transfer from a ship detained for repairs, supplying on board the indomitable, the place of a previous master-at-arms disabled and ashore. No sooner did the commander observe who it was that now so deferentially stood awaiting his notice, and a peculiar expression came over his face. It was not unlike that which uncontrollably will flit across the countenance of one at unawares encountering a person who, though known to him indeed, has hardly been long enough known for thorough knowledge, but something in whose aspect nevertheless now for the first provokes a vaguely repellent distaste. But coming to a stand, and resuming much of his wonted official manner, save that a sort of impatience lurked in the intonation of the opening word, he said, Well, what is it, master-at-arms? 
with the air of a subordinate grieved at the necessity of being a messenger of ill tidings, and while conscientiously determined to be frank, yet equally resolved upon shunning overstatement, Clygert, at this invitation, or rather summons to disburden, spoke up. What he said, conveyed in the language of no uneducated man, was to the effect following, if not altogether in these words, namely, that during the chase and preparations for the possible encounter he had seen enough to convince him that at least one sailor aboard was a dangerous character in a ship mustering some who not only had taken a guilty part in the late serious trouble, but others also who, like the man in question, had entered his majesty's service under another form than enlistment. At this point, Captain Veer, with some impatience, interrupted him. Be direct, man. Say, impressed men. Clygert made a gesture of subservience and proceeded. Quite lately he, Clygert, had begun to suspect that some sort of movement prompted by the sailor in question was covertly going on, but he had not thought himself warranted in reporting the suspicion so long as it remained indistinct. But from what he had that afternoon observed in the man referred to, the suspicion of something clandestine going on had advanced to a point less removed from certainty. He deeply felt, he added, the serious responsibility assumed in making a report involving such possible consequences to the individual mainly concerned, besides tending to augment those natural anxieties which every naval commander must feel in view of extraordinary outbreaks so recent as those which, he sorrowfully said it, it needed not to name. Now at the first broaching of the matter, Captain Veer, taken by surprise, could not wholly dissemble his disquietude. But as Clygert went on, the former's aspect changed into restiveness under something in the testifier's manner in giving his testimony. However, he refrained from interrupting him, and Clygert, continuing, concluded with this. God forbid, Your Honor, that the Indomitables should be the experience of the— Never mind that! Here peremptorily broke in the superior— his face altering with anger instantly, divining the ship that the other was about to name, one in which the Nor mutiny had assumed a singularly tragical character that for a time jeopardized the life of its commander. Under the circumstances, he was indignant at the purposed allusion. When the commissioned officers themselves were on all occasions very heedful how they referred to the recent event, for a petty officer unnecessarily to allude to it in the presence of his captain, this struck him as a most immodest presumption. Besides, to his quick sense of self-respect, it even looked under the circumstances something like an attempt to alarm him. Nor at that was he without some surprise that one who so far as he had hitherto come under his notice had shown considerable tact in his function should in this particular evince such lack of it. But these thoughts and kindred dubious ones flitting across his mind were suddenly replaced by an intuitional surmise which, though as yet obscure in form, served practically to affect his reception of the ill tidings. Certain it is that long versed in everything pertaining to the complicated gun-deck life, which like every other form of life has its secret minds and dubious side, the side popularly disclaimed, Captain Veer did not permit himself to be unduly disturbed by the general tenor of his subordinate's report. Furthermore, if in view of recent events prompt action should be taken at the first palpable sign of recurring insubordination, for all that, not judicious would it be, he thought, to keep the idea of lingering disaffection alive by undue forwardness in crediting an informer, even if his own subordinate, and charged among other honors with police surveillance of the crew. 
this feeling would not perhaps have so prevailed with him were it not that upon a prior occasion the patriotic zeal officially evinced by Clygert had somewhat irritated him as appearing rather supersensitive and strained. Furthermore, something even in the official's self-possessed and somewhat ostentatious manner in making his specifications strangely reminded him of a bandsman. A perjured witness in a capital case before a court-martial ashore of which when a lieutenant he, Captain Veer, had been a member. Now the peremptory check given to Claggard in the matter of the arrested illusion was quickly followed up by this. You say that there is at least one dangerous man aboard. Name him. William Budd, a foretopman, your honor. William Budd? repeated Captain Veer with unfeigned astonishment. And mean you the man that Lieutenant Ratcliffe took from the merchantman not very long ago? The young fellow who seems to be so popular with the men? Billy, the handsome sailor, as they call him? The same, your honor, but for all his youth and good looks a deep one. Not for nothing does he insinuate himself into the good will of his shipmates, since at the least they will at a pinch say a good word for him at all hazards. Did Lieutenant Ratcliffe happen to tell your honor of that adroit fling of buds jumping up in the cutter's bow under the merchantman's stern when he was being taken off? That sort of good-humored air even masks that at heart he resents his impressment. You have but noted his fair cheek. A man-trap may be under his ruddy-tipped daisies. Now the handsome sailor as a signal figure among the crew had naturally enough attracted the captain's attention from the first. Though in general not very demonstrative to his officers, he had congratulated Lieutenant Ratcliffe upon his good fortune in lighting on such a fine specimen of the genus Homo, who in the nude might have passed for a statue of young Adam before the fall. As to Billy's adieu to the ship Rights of Man, which the boarding lieutenant in a deferential way had indeed reported to him, Captain Veer, more as a good story than aught else, having mistakenly understood it as a satiric sally, had but thought so much the better of the impressed man for it. As a military sailor, admiring the spirit that could take an arbitrary enlistment so merrily and sensibly. The foretopman's conduct, too, so far as it had fallen under the captain's notice, had confirmed the first happy augury, while the new recruit's qualities as a sailor-man seemed to be such that he had thought of recommending him to the executive officer for promotion to a place that would more frequently bring him under his own observation namely the captaincy of the mizzen-top, replacing there in the starboard watch a man not so young whom partly for that reason he deemed less fitted for the post. Be it parenthesized here that since the mizzen-topmen have not to handle such breadths of heavy canvas as the lower sails on the mainmast and foremast, a young man, if of the right stuff, not only seems best adapted to duty there, but in fact is generally selected for the captaincy of that top and the company under him are light hands, and often but striplings. In sum, Captain Veer had from the beginning deemed Billy Budd to be what in the naval parlance of the time was called a king's bargain, that is to say, for his Britannic Majesty's navy, a capital investment at small outlay or none at all. After a brief pause during which the reminiscences above mentioned passed vividly through his mind, he weighed the import of Claggart's last suggestion conveyed in the phrase a man-trap under his ruddy-tipped daisies, and the more he weighed it, the less reliance he felt in the informer's good faith. Suddenly he turned upon him. Do you come to me, master-at-arms, with so foggy a tale? As to Bud, cite me an act or spoken word of his confirmatory of what you in general charge against him. Stay, drawing nearer to him, heed what you speak. Just now, and in a case like this, there is a yard-arm end for the false witness. 
Ah, your honor, sighed Claggart, mildly shaking his shapely head as in sad deprecation of such unmerited severity of tone. Then bridling, erecting himself as in virtuous self-assertion, he circumstantially alleged certain words and acts which collectively, if credited, led to presumption's mortally inculpating bud, and for some of these averments, he added, substantiating proof was not far. With gray eyes impatient and distrustful, essaying to fathom to the bottom Claggart's calm violet ones, Captain Veer again heard him out, then for the moment stood ruminating. The mood he evinced, Claggart, himself for the time liberated from the other's scrutiny, steadily regarded with a look difficult to render, a look curious of the operation of his tactics, a look such as might have been that of the spokesman of the envious children of Jacob, deceptively imposing upon the troubled patriarch the blood-dyed coat of young Joseph. Though something exceptional in the moral quality of Captain Veer made him, in earnest encounter with a fellow man, a veritable touchstone of that man's essential nature, yet now